Thank you very much for joining the webinar. Warm welcome to all. Um, it's a perfect program, I think, to do while we're all uh, under house arrest here. So thank you for joining. Uh, I'm Paul Mastercola. I'm a partner at Burns and Levinson, co-chair of the uh, Business Litigation Dispute Resolution Practice Group at Burns and Levinson. Uh, I'd like to introduce briefly our uh, panel. We have an all-star cast of Superior Court judges um, and briefly to go over uh, uh, their background, uh, Judge Rosemary Connolly is with us. Judge Connolly's been on the Superior Court bench since 2016. Uh, prior to the Superior Court, Judge Connolly served in the U.S. Attorney's Office as Chief of the Civil Division. And prior to that was 11 years in the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. Judge Connolly was an attorney in private practice prior to government service and also uh, currently serves uh, on the Civil Committee of the Superior Court. Uh, we have Judge Mark Mason. Judge Mason joined the Superior Court in 2014 after six years uh, as a judge in Springfield District Court. And he was an attorney in private practice for about 24 years. Uh, judge Mason chairs the Superior Court Civil Committee and is a past president of the Mass Bar Association. Also, please welcome Judge Janet Sanders. Uh, judge Sanders, uh, it has been on the Superior Court as a judge for going on 20 years. Uh, judge Sanders serves on the business litigation session and is, and is in charge of the BLS as the administrative justice. Uh, also, we have David Rich, who is a partner at Todd and Weld, specializing in business and commercial litigation, among many other things. So thank you all for being here, uh, the panel and the audience. Uh, we have an ambitious agenda. We hope to cover a lot uh, this afternoon. We'll be discussing uh, the SJC and Superior Court orders that are relevant to court operations uh, during the crisis, strategies for moving cases forward, um, how to resolve motions in this environment, what's going to happen with trials, status of jury trials, the role of bench trials in all this, uh, how remote hearings might be conducted, and uh, whatever else might come up. So uh, thank you again, everyone, for being here. To get things started, um, since this pandemic took hold of society, there have been a number of orders issued by the SJC and the Superior Court addressing court operations. Judge Mason, if we may start with you, um, can you discuss what Superior Court order currently governs civil matters in the Superior Court and uh, give us a little summary of anything you think is significant would be wonderful. Certainly, thank you very much, Paul. But first, on behalf of the Superior Court Civil Committee, we'd like to thank the Boston Bar Association Business and Commercial Litigation Section, and particularly you, uh, Paul, Paul Mastercola, and Dan Tai, who is somewhere off in the ether, the, the co-chairs of the uh, section. We greatly appreciate uh, your dedication to um, uh, working through with these very difficult times. Most of all, however, on behalf of the committee, we want to thank all of you who are listening. We respect the frustration, the anxiety, the uncertainty, indeed the hardships that you are facing along with your clients, the very public which we serve. But rest assured that together as a court and as officers of the court, we will persevere. So let's get to work. The current Superior Court standing order, that is to say the one which is 
currently in effect is our order 6 hyphen 20 and that became effective on May 4th just last week that standing order was issued pursuant to the SJC's most recent standing order or um, OE uh, 144 as it's called, which was also effective May 4th. Our standing order will remain in effect until further order of the court. And I think it's a fair bet to say that there will be further order of the court. I'm just going to summarize some of the important provisions of standing order 6-20, because we'll be talking about um, the nuts and bolts of what is going on in the Supreme Court in much more detail during the course of this afternoon's webinar. First, I'd like to address emergency matters. And please bear in mind that my comments uniquely relate to civil matters before our court. It's important that you understand that until at least June 1st, that the Superior Court remains open to conduct court business. It's our courthouses which are closed to the general public. That is to say the physical structures, except where entry is required in order to address emergency matters that can't be resolved virtually. That is to say by telephone, video conference, email, or coupling means, or by or through electronic filing. There are limited matters that may be addressed in person that are emergencies. And they are, first, proceedings which we refer to as Mary Mope petitions. Those are petitions of minors to dispense with parental or guardian consent for abortions, and importantly, any other matter which a judge in her or his discretion determines requires an in-person proceeding because it can't be resolved virtually because it's either not practical or would be inconsistent with the protection of constitutional rights. Anyone who is seeking to arrange an in-person hearing during this time period must contact the clerk's office for the relevant county. Now, if, as has happened over the past several months, the Superior Court where the hearing is to occur is closed because of either an actual or a suspected infection, then the Regional Administrative Justice, who we refer to as the Raj, will make arrangements to conduct the hearing elsewhere. For other emergency matters, please understand that, at least pursuant to the standing order, that requests for TROs, emergency requests for TROs, are to be heard promptly as possible and presumptively will be held by video conference or by telephone. Let's talk about what the standing order provides pursuant to uh, or for non-emergency matters. That is to say motions, final pretrial conferences, rule 16 conferences, all the events that we'll be talking about during the course of today's webinar. Those non-emergency matters will be addressed between now and June 1 to the extent feasible for a particular court with adequate staffing. The happy news though, is that many of our courts are handling 9A filings, that is to say, clerks and judges, um, to their individual capabilities, and indeed are conducting hearings. Those hearings are being conducted remotely, and we'll be talking about them further during the course of today's webinar. Just a brief word about trials pursuant to the standing order. We'll be talking about them later on. Please understand that all jury trials that are scheduled to commence between March 13 and July 1 are continued to a date no earlier than July 1. That's not to say that they'll start on July 1, but they're not going to be any earlier than 
July 1. We respect and understand. We hope that you understand the reason why. All bench trials, on the other hand, that were scheduled to commence during that time period between March 13 and July 1, are continued to a date no earlier than June 1, just two and a half weeks away. And similarly, all evidentiary hearings are continued to a date no earlier than June 1. Just as with our predecessor standing order, all statutes of limitation, as well as all deadlines set forth in statutes, standing orders, tracking orders, guidelines, court ordered deadlines are told until June 1. And the standing order sets forth a very detailed method for calculating those deadlines. Lastly, the standing order talks about e-filing, but we're gonna be discussing that in just a brief moment. So that in a nutshell is what our most recent, our active standing order, standing order 6-20 of the Superior Court provides. Thank you, Judge Mason. Great summary. Uh, I should mention too that uh, we will attempt to take any questions um, at, at the end of the session today. We've left a few minutes. So if um, any of the uh, viewers of the webinar wish to um, submit a question, you can do it through the Q&A function uh, in Zoom. Uh, and uh, we will try to uh, look at those questions as we go along and maybe pose a few of them uh, if, uh, to the to the panel at the end of the uh, of the webinar, um, so we'll keep an eye out for those. In the meantime, David, if I can turn to you, continuing the discussion of uh, Standing Order 620, Section Four of the Standing Order 620 discusses electronic filing uh, and electronic service. Would you discuss the Standing Order provisions about e-filing and e-service, e and perhaps address uh, how the um, orders on e-filing and e-service e or uh, impact the way lawyers are practicing right now? Sure, um, and thanks, Paul. I think um, the, the Superior Court standing order in many respects drives off of a series of orders that were issued by the SJC. And so, um, and all those SJC orders are available online at the SJC's website. I'm gonna talk briefly about e-filing and then e-service and then very, very briefly on e-signatures. When you talk about e-filing, there really are two different, we're talking about two different things. First, there is the electronic filing, which is available through the electronic filing system um, that is available in some counties, not all counties, and I'll come back to that in a second. And then there is the more, uh, shall we say, um, the, the filing of uh, informal e-filing, which are really just working out with the clerks and the courts, the receipt of papers, theoretically through email and through faxes. Um, first on electronic filing, the, the, in, the, in the formal sense, there are five counties that are currently part of the electronic filing system, Worcester, Middlesex, Plymouth, Barnstable, and Nantucket. There's a web portal, efilema.com, through which you can file pleadings in many cases, many superior court cases in those five counties. Um, for folks who have filed um, papers with the SJC and the appeals court on the state side, um, it's the same portal and it's the same um, process. The 
formal electronic filing process is not a whole lot different than PACER. It's, a, it's um, not as user friendly as PACER, but it, it, it is a way of filing papers electronically. Um, what I have, what my office and folks in my office has found is the ability to use the efilemass.com website um, can serve to uh, save some of the red tape that you might, uh, which is ordinary and simple when you're all in the same place at the same time, but when people are working remotely and you want to file, for example, a new case and you have to get a, a, a check from your office and you got to get the check sent to you, having the ability to electronically file in the formal sense and pay by a credit card is something that folks, um, I think, are, are becoming more aware of and um, makes uh, the process a little bit more streamlined. Um, on Now let me talk about informal um, e-filing, which is really what the um, standing order, Superior Court standing order is really um, driven by. Um, and, and I think what you will find, uh, at least what, we, what I have found, is that the protocols and the processes really vary not only from uh, courthouse to courthouse, but from clerk to clerk. Um, you know, even before the pandemic, the clerks, each clerk's office had its own sort of idiosyncratic way of doing things. Here, um, it's, it's even more so, and that's largely a function of the fact that there's a rotating staff. And so talking to a clerk on a Monday, like when you call the clerk's office to talk about how can I get my papers to you, um, it's a virtual certainty that on, come Tuesday, a different person is going to answer the phone and may not have communicated with the person who you talked to on, on Monday. Um, on, um, the, the standing order speaks to uh, emergency motions. Uh, emergency papers can be um, submitted by email. Non-emergency papers, um, it is to the discretion of the clerk, the court, and um, my strong suspicion is it's a function of what it is you want to email to them. If you want to email a summary judgment motion that's 600 pages and will require a clerk to spend an hour and a half printing things off the printer, it's very unlikely that, that they'll be excited about um, uh, accepting such a pleading. But if it's a, a notice of appearance, if it's so that you can get in the system, um, a, a very simple joint motion, um, I expect that the clerk's office will be very amenable to um, that sort of uh, accepting those filings. But the, the critical thing is to pick up the phone, call the clerk's office, be patient with whomever you are talking to. Um, and to the extent there is a um, session specific issue, I found um, in the last couple of weeks, it's, it's very helpful to ask the, the clerk in the clerk's office um, if the um, the session if, if the session clerk is accepting emails, and if you could have the session clerk's email and try to proceed directly with the session clerk, because of course, particularly where you're dealing with an emergency motion, the goal here is to get the papers to the judge as quickly as you can in the form that the judge um, makes it easy for easiest for the judge. Um, so uh, that really covers sort of the two sections of, of e-filing very briefly on e-service. Over the last, uh, I think, couple of months, the SJC has issued orders on electronic service and actually another on electronic signatures. Um, the order on electronic service is a March 30th order. And in effect, it permits electronic service as proper under Rule 5B of the 
Mass Rules of Civil Procedure. On the service issues, in a lot of ways, from a practitioner standpoint, the SJC's order really just formalizes in a lot of ways the, law that, the way lawyers have been informally interacting for some time. I mean, as a practical matter, uh, my typical practice is to engage with counsel early on and say, hey, can we serve each other by email? Um, a couple of notes about the SJC's order on e-service. As I said, um, in effect, it modifies Rule 5B of the Rules of Civil Procedure to permit service of pleadings by email. Um, you are allowed to serve email on opposing counsel so long as their email address is readily available and typically is on a pleading at the bottom of the signature block. Uh, the SJC order uh, provides that service is deemed complete upon hitting send. So that's when service is, is made. However, the responding party, according to the SJC order, still gets to add three days to the response deadline as if the pleading was mailed. Um, importantly, the SJC's order does not cover pro se litigants. So if you're dealing with a pro se party on the other side, you need their specific written permission in order to serve pleadings upon them by email. Um, and of course, the SJC order talks about cooperation, which um, is somewhat obvious these days. Very quickly, in 15 seconds or less, um, lastly, I wanted to make reference to the SJC's order on e-signatures. That was their April 6th order, and it really uh, essentially follows what many of us have done in the federal courts for some time and allows electronic signatures, S, um, call S with the typed out part of your name. The interesting um, piece that I think practitioners would wanna know about e-signatures is that the SJC order contemplates circumstances by which because of the pandemic, um, an attorney can't get an original or sand scanned signature from someone, a client, a witness who's submitting an affidavit. And so the order contemplates that you can submit the affidavit with an electronic signature so long as, as soon as reasonably practical thereafter, you follow up with a handwritten signature. So again, I think the goal here is to um, allow papers to get in front of the judge as quickly as follows and um, clean things up on the back end. Um, so I think that largely covers, Paul, um, e-signatures and e-filing and e-service. That covered a lot. J judge Mason, you, you had a comment? Excellent job, David. Um, I, I did want to add one of the uh, things that was important to us, uh, that we we're glad to see the SJC included in the order, is a provision that any party who claims that that party did not receive a pleading or other paper that was allegedly served by email may move for relief from any ruling, any entry or default, or any adverse action. And I anticipate that we're going to be seeing um, those particular motions. Um, also, it was important, we were glad to see a provision that attorneys must periodically check their spam or their quarantine or equivalent folders to ensure that a party's email is not being blocked or otherwise diverted. Let's not forget that this is going to be a work in process and um, uh, we'll have to see where it goes, but please be mindful that you need to check those files and certainly 
um, uh, um, will be um, uh, sensitive to motions relative to that they were not, uh, they did not receive an email. Thank you, Judge Mason. David, one quick follow-up on the um, on informal email filing when you're essentially sending an email to a to a clerk with some pleadings or motion papers attached. Do you advise, what's your practice? Would you follow up with hard copies sent to the court also, or would the email, informal email suffice? That's a really good question, and the answer is ask. Um, I, you know, and back to the idiosyncratic ways of certain clerk's office, there are certain session clerks that um, will receive a pleading from you and um, don't like it, and, and they take care of docketing it, and don't like it when the, the, the second copy comes along, and then some clerks view what you are sending them by email or fax as the judge's courtesy copy for which the judge can take notes on or um, mark up or X out, and you need the hard copy. And so um, I think it's critical that you um, ask the question and say, would you like me to send a, um, a hard copy to follow? So that it gets docketed, so that um, it, it, it so it appears in the paper file, because you know, all of us were living in the in the moment, and we want to make sure that the judge has the papers. But weeks go by, and you say, well, why isn't that on the docket? Or you want to take a single justice appeal, or you want to um, uh, you you want to just the you want the whole court file. So when a new judge rotates in, everything's in there. So um, I think it's a really good question, and I think the practice will vary from um, courthouse to courthouse and from clerk to clerk. But so I think it's a, it's a really good question to ask um, and, and then it's easy to follow up. Okay, great. Thanks, David. Um, Judge Sanders, if we, if we may turn to you, uh, as we all know, the, the court has extensive procedural rules and practices. Uh, and at the same time, there are limitations imposed by the pandemic restrictions. Can we ask you to speak to uh, what lawyers' expectations should be as to how cases may proceed in, in this environment? Uh, yeah, I thought I might just talk, my experience, of course, in the last decade has been Suffolk exclusively, uh, so this may not be true for some other counties, smaller counties, um, and there will be some similarities. So I'm, I'm, I was going to talk about how these standing orders have played out um, uh, in conducting civil business um, in Suffolk County. To pick up on that last point about um, emails, um, Suffolk County does not have e-filing. Um, our clerk, Michael Donovan, is very, um, I feel very strongly that there shall be no email filings. So you must file a hard copy. Uh, you can, of course, then have a courtesy copy uh, to the, uh, sent to the clerk. And I welcome that because it's going to make it a lot easier for me to get uh, those papers. But um, you may you may get the occasional clerk who said, you know, he'll go up and uh, docket it for you. But essentially, they've gotten marching orders from Clerk Donovan that um, uh, they are not to accept any email filings. You must file a hard copy. Um, so what what else has been happening um, in the last few weeks? Uh, well, certainly since March 13th, since this all happened. Um, the criminal uh, emergency business really has taken priority. It's only been in the last uh, couple of weeks that uh, the, the, uh, the courts have even entertained the idea of uh, resolving non-emergency matters. And as uh, Judge Mason pointed out, this is to the extent feasible. 
Uh, and that's a really important qualification because uh, there is uh, our limitations based on the skeletal staffing that's occurring right now in the clerk's offices, uh, the technological restraints we're operating under, and again, this need to prioritize these emergency matters. Uh, we accept uh, all civil filings, uh, and the civil clerk's office is, has enough staff to put together 9A packages that are rooted to the judge. Nine, uh, judges are reviewing those packages, and if they have it, don't require a hearing, they're ruling on them. Um, as to have conducting hearings, those in the last, um, even though they've been permitted, they have been quite rare in Suffolk County uh, because we have so few clerks in the building. We have one emergency clerk and we have one clerk to cover everything else. So for example, BLS2, that clerk will come in once every 10 days. And that's simply not enough to be arranging remote hearings, uh, to contact lawyers, to get together the documents, uh, and then uh, to have the, um, uh, the hearing itself. Um, the clerks have been working remotely. They've been checking their emails, checking their voicemails. They do not have access to mass courts. So that when they come in that once every 10 days, they have to be doing those kinds of tasks. Um, and that's why these remote hearings have been so rare on the on our emergencies. We do hope that things will be changing beginning next week, which is when we hope Judge ba um, the governor is going to be loosening things up a bit. Uh, the emergency criminal business has actually subsided. Uh, the staffing is going to improve. We're going to have, uh, in addition to the emergency uh, clerk, there will be uh, the clerk of the session coming in once a week. Uh, so in BLS 1, that's on a Monday. BLS 2, it's on a Friday. Once a week uh, in which those remote hearings can be conducted. And I say um, it's we have to have the clerk there because the clerk will be in the courtroom to make sure there is a recording of the Zoom conference that the judge uh, will arrange. Uh, judges are actually planning to be in court at the same time. Um, theoretically, the judge could organize the Zoom conference from home, but we do need that clerk in the courtroom uh, to record the Zoom conference on uh, the FTR. Um, the um, staff shortages, I, these, I think this skeleton staff is going to continue for a while, um, and that's going to affect uh, the timing of um, uh, um, in which matters are docketed, uh, uh, when uh, notifications are sent out, and again, the number of hearings that can be held, given that we're operating only one day a week in each session. Um, I think jury trials are a long way off. And in fact, if I were to give my personal opinion, I don't think we're gonna civil see a civil jury trial until 2021. Um, nobody else, I, I, I'm not really prepared to put on a date on it in particular because it's a dangerous thing to do uh, in these times. Uh, but I think uh, we are a long way from having a civil jury trial. Um, so I think the bottom line is um, uh, getting back to business is going to be a very slow process. Um, and it, my advice to the bar is to uh, be patient and be flexible. Um, and it means we're going to have to work together to be very creative uh, as to how we might move um, uh, uh, cases along. Um, because the reality is our rules, um, our ways of doing business, our facilities uh, were simply not fashioned for a pandemic. Uh, and so our expectations as to how these cases uh, are going to proceed uh, really have to change. Uh, and we have to be much more innovative 
um, uh, perhaps um, in our approaches. Um, so uh, that's kind of what's happening in Suffolk. Um, I expect uh, other counties are ex um, uh, uh, experiencing um, uh, similar problems. We do have uh, a facility, as you know, which is 13 floors high. Um, uh, people have to ride up and down those elevators. Uh, and we have a lot of criminal business to deal with too. So just keeping people six feet apart um, in and of itself will be a challenge um, um, during these um, extraordinary times. Thank you, Judge Sanders, uh, for the, the, the Suffolk and, and BLS uh, perspective. Um, Judge Connolly, uh, Judge Sanders you know, referred to uh, getting back to normal business and how long that would take, what it would look like um, as court operations and the progress of, of civil cases is dramatically slowed. Obviously, there's going to be a backlog of casework uh, that, is, that is mounting. Can you give us a sense, Judge Connolly, of how you anticipate the Superior Court will prioritize cases and handle that going forward? Um, sure. I, I'd like to just kind of roll back a little bit. Actually, the courthouse I'm in now, which is in Norfolk, was in fact built for pandemics. It was built in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, so it was before the Spanish flu. Um, so it's really on its second pandemic. So it's actually well broken in on that. But I think um, both Judge Mason and Judge Sanders are pointing out some of the differences and the different challenges facing each of the facilities we have, the personnel we have, and the capabilities that that allows us. Um, I am happy to report in Norfolk County, uh, we're having um, more success, I think, than Suffolk because it's a smaller county, it's a smaller courthouse. Um, on the civil side today, for example, we did uh, six hearings virtually. Um, we're doing motions on the papers. We're hopeful by maybe mid-June any of the hearings that got canceled uh, from March forward will probably be at least rescheduled, if not heard by that time. Uh, people who want to submit on the papers, we're able to accommodate that. Um, we are having to rotate because of social dista uh, distancing. Uh, the number of people we can have in the clerk's office, the number of people in the court, the number of court offices we can have, but um, we're, we're managing through that. And I think um, in, in Norfolk on the civil side, we're going to be um, uh, able to perhaps move a little bit more quickly than Suffolk is because of the unique challenges uh, that uh, face in Suffolk. And I know Suffolk has already had one shutdown because of someone testing positive with COVID. And I know out in Springfield, they've had a couple of court shutdowns, which also, of course, impacts the court's ability to handle these things. So um, I am pleased to report in Norfolk where we're making some good progress and good headway. Um, I think when we start to come back online, I think Judge Sanders is right, jury trials are gonna be a little way off because of the whole social distancing issues and uh, making sure we have uh, proper procedures and protocol and safety practices um, to protect the public when they come in in such numbers. But I think um, actually, ironically, I think civil is gonna come up faster than criminal um, in terms of the flexibility that we have on the civil side if you want to have jury wave trials, uh, which we'll be talking about a little bit later, if you want to re, uh, have something decided on the papers, maybe there's one issue that you need to have decided and then you want to go out to mediation. Um, so I think on the civil side, um, until criminal can really ramp up and we can have jury trials in criminal case, we're going to have lots of civil time available to us. 
And because we can't have large juries, we have all the time in the world in the civil side for motions. So I think that's the good message and the good news that I can get out to you. In terms of prioritizing our cases, I think that's the strategy. What can we decide on the papers? What can we do by a conference call? What we're doing now, our court has got the judges' uh, professional Zoom licenses. Hopefully we'll get professional makeup artists to go with it. But right now we have professional Zoom licenses and um, we're able to schedule if that's convenient for the parties. Um, for other parties, they want to do it by phone, that's fine. Other parties want to do their work on the papers, that's all fine. The technology ought not be the hurdle that prevents you from getting your work done. The technology is supposed to allow us and enable us to get that done in a way um, that we can't do because we can't have you here uh, physically present in our courtrooms. So uh, in terms of prioritizing, um, emergency work obviously is going to come first be, and then second beyond that. Um, if you want to send a note off to any of the clerks saying, gee, uh, our matters were postponed during that COVID period. Can you get us back on the list as soon as there's an opening for either a virtual hearing or we've talked about it, we're going to ask the court to decide something on the papers. Um, that'll come second. And then uh, third are all those other things that are still going on. And I know cases have been delayed because of COVID not being able to complete discovery and get depositions done and whatnot. Um, so those will be coming online. So as to those just in the ordinary course, submit your motions and we'll handle them um, you know, as best we can. Um, don't be, you know, we're all kind of working our way through this. So I think we all need to have patience with one another as we go through it. Uh, Judge Connolly, staying with you, what what do you see as the role of um, the Superior Court Rule 20 individual case management in advancement of civil cases in, in, in this environment with the crisis? Is that a, is that a, a tool and a rule that should be used? More oh, you asked that question. I think Rule 20 is the smorgasbord. Um, I think you can look through Rule 20 and parties in good faith can talk about some ways they might be able to um, triangulate their cases. Like I said before, maybe there's one issue, it's a real pressure point in the case and maybe they can submit on joint facts. Maybe it's a statute of frauds, maybe it's statute of limitations or something like that, some contractual issue that gee, if we could just have that decided, um, then we could go forward and have mediation or maybe have some private settlement discussion. So look at Rule 20. Maybe you can submit your case um, instead of having affidavit, um, instead of having your experts come in live. Maybe you can do it by affidavit and deposition testimony, and stipulate to that, and then you could move forward and just have a jury waive trial um, on your case. And uh, Judge Sanders will talk about this a little bit later. Some of the options we have there. Uh, maybe uh, because it's difficult to do discovery right now. Maybe there's some limitation in in discovery that the parties can agree to. Uh, maybe you want to bifurcate and go forward first on liability and not damages. Um, so I think there's a lot in Rule 20 you can look at. And as I say, on the civil side, we have the luxury of having more flexibility uh, in working with the parties to um, help accommodate what the needs of the case are to move them along. So I think Rule 20 is a great, um, is a great tool, and I would encourage parties to use it to see what in Rule 20 to give them something to kind of push their case um, forward. Okay, th thank you, Judge. Uh, Judge Mason, continuing the discussion of Rule 20, uh, 
Rule 20 contains provisions relating to alternative dispute resolution. Does the Superior Court provide uh, court-connected mediation and conciliation services? If you could talk about that a little bit. Yes, we, we certainly do, but let me just uh, hark back to a, a comment that uh, Judge Conley made, uh, and that is that perhaps the, the courthouse where she's currently sitting has seen at least one pandemic. Our court, the Superior Court, has probably seen in its, what, 156 years or so, more than two pandemics. Uh, and uh, there's a certain resiliency, I suppose, um, to our moving forward. And Rule 20 is emblematic of that resiliency. Rule 20 has been on the books for a couple of years now. If you're not familiar with it, I commend it to your attention. It provides for individual case management and tracking. And the purpose is to assist parties in securing a cost-effective means to resolve their dispute. And in these times, certainly, um, uh, that's an important um, measure. And the rule sets forth a, a smorgasbord, as we say, a menu of litigation options um, that are non-exclusive um, that the parties can agree upon. And in order to do so, there's a form, which is a motion for case-specific management uh, pursuant to Rule 20 that you'll find online that you can uh, file. Both parties can file it, one party can file it, or the court on its own initiative can order a Rule 20 conference. Indeed, the um, rule does provide for the scheduling of mediation, arbitration, or other ADR with a Superior Court approved ADR provider or a private ADR provider. We do not make referrals to private ADR, and I couldn't resist. I took a peek at some of the questions and, uh, that are being uh, posed. Many of them relate to this um, the very um, issue. We maintain on our staff um, a, uh, an in-house mediator uh, whose name is Jim McCormick. Uh, and Jim McCormick uh, uniquely does mediations for the Superior Court. He's now doing them remotely which is great for those of us who don't sit in that or don't, those of you who don't practice necessarily in the greater Boston area uh, because you all have access to them. If you're interested in a mediation with, uh, with Jim, you should email him at james.mccormick, which is M-C-C-O-R-M-A-C at jud.state.ma.us. Please understand uh, that we only have one in-house mediator um, and so I suspect he's going to be um, uh, quite busy. However, I do want to just briefly talk about um, a, um, a, a little known uh, corner of uh, Rule 20, which um, has uh, seen very little action, which is something that I would commend to the bar's attention. And that is that pursuant to Rule 20, the parties may agree upon and request, and this has to be by agreement of the parties, what is referred to as early non-binding judicial assessment of case. And please understand that any judge who conducts that sort of assessment will consider whether or not he or she should disqualify himself or herself in subsequent matters in the case. So what on earth is early non-binding judicial assessment of a case? Uh, it's not defined in our uniform rules of dispute resolution. It's not defined in our superior court rules, but might I suggest that it is akin to case evaluation. Case evaluation, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, is a process whereby the parties or their counsel present a summary of their cases to a neutral who renders a non-binding opinion 
on either the settlement value of a particular case or a non-binding prediction of the likely outcome of that case. And indeed, um, case evaluation or early judicial um, assessment of case um, is well suited uh, to perhaps non-complex cases, such as um, a relatively simple tort case, motor vehicle case, or a slip and fall. Perhaps there's a case in which liability really is, is not an issue, but damages are, or vice versa. Um, uh, maybe um, uh, there's a case um, uh, where damages are not the issue, but liability is. Those cases may be well suited for um, a, a judicial settlement uh, conference. We really don't conduct as judges conciliations or mediations in our court, uh, but uh, I suppose if you are interested in an early non-binding judicial assessment of a case in a matter that's not going to be overwhelmingly complex or time consuming, then you might consider making such a quest. But bear in mind that you need to locate a judge who is willing to conduct uh, an early non-binding judicial assessment of a case. And I hope you respect that some judges are amenable to doing so while others um, are not. Regardless of what you do, if you engage in a conciliation, mediation uh, with uh, Jim McCormick, ensure that you have a participation agreement that sets forth measures pertaining to confidentiality, restrictions on discovery born of ADR, work product, that sort of thing. And if you are engaged in a, an early assessment in court, please understand that there are certain closed courtroom issues that come into play. And here the issue is a bit unsettled, I'll suggest. While our SJC has held that free access to civil trials is well established, that's the Boston Herald case going back to 1995, the guidelines that the SJC has set forth in the public's right of access to judicial proceedings back in 2000 provide uh, provides that summary jury trials, which are a form of ADR, um, uh, are, um, uh, are not subject to a First Amendment mandate uh, that the public have access. So um, uh, be aware that there are some issues pertaining to uh, um, open courtrooms that may pertain to uh, any sort of ADR which is conducted by a judge. So those are my thoughts uh, relative to uh, Rule 20. Uh, please take a look at it. Uh, thank you, Judge. Um, David, uh, turning from Rule 20 to, uh, to Rule 16, um, if you're representing a, a client attempting to navigate you know, superior court litigation in, in the current situation, in your view, what circumstances, in what circumstances should lawyers be um, seeking Rule 16 status conferences? How can that help? Well, the, the short answer is in virtually all um, mm -hmm. cases. The two exceptions I think that um, may not, it may not be necessary are one, cases that are early on in the case where you aren't certain yet that you will need time on the back end or, or an adjustment. And the other, other situation might be if the parties can agree upon what a schedule, a new schedule might look like and you submit that. But even in those cases, I think there, there may be significant value to um, asking for a Rule 16 conference, particularly where my 
expectation, and the, the judges can, can confirm this, that most of those types of hearings are going to take place remotely, um, either over Zoom or telephone. So the cost to the litigants um, is relatively small. I think, uh, particularly having practiced um, in, the, in the BLS, where Rule 16 conferences are, are happening in every case, um, there's significant value um, in, in, in getting an engagement with the court and with opposing counsel and with your clients about, you know, where are we, <laughs> where are we going and how long is it gonna take to get there? Other, because otherwise, what's going to happen is, is if you don't do that, these cases are just going to drift. And um, you know, it, it is particularly even even to appear at, at a Rule 16 conference in front of a judge beyond simply um, talking about what a schedule looks like. Um, there's lots, you know, telegraphing to the court. Hey, we have a discovery motion. Hey, um, how would you like us to proceed? Hey, you know, I don't think this is going to be a summary judgment case. So um, can we schedule a final pretrial conference at a particular time? Um, all things designed to, to sort of speak to the flexibility that um, um, I think uh, Judge Connolly, Judge Mason, and Judge Sanders have been speaking to, getting the opportunity in the context of a Rule 16 conference to um, interact with opposing counsel, interact with the court, and interact with your clients and get on a track. Because I think, I fear that that's, one of the um, biggest concerns going forward is that you're just in limbo and you're just kind of floating around in the ether. And when you think the time comes to call the court and say, hey, we're ready for whatever needs to happen next, um, you've lost a substantial amount of time. Okay, and David, what, what about final pretrial conferences? Is it helpful to you as a lawyer to have a final pretrial conference or is that more for the benefit of the court in your view? Well, I think every case is different. Um, and I think oftentimes you need a final pretrial conference to get a trial date. Um, and so if you wanna be in the queue, so to speak, whether it's for a, a, a jury wave trial with findings, without findings, uh, most sessions aren't gonna give you that date unless you have a final pretrial conference. But, um, you know, Oftentimes, again, much like um, Rule 16 conferences, the the act sometimes the act of the final of preparing for the final pretrial conference is as important or even more important than actually showing up at the final pretrial conference. Although it is it is helpful from time to time, where the judge will say, "Have the parties given any thought to settlements?" And sometimes one side or the other is reluctant to sort of put dip their toe in the water, and having the, the ask come from the judge facilitates the dialogue, but really um, having the opportunity and the requirements to sit down with opposing counsel and um, your client and talk about these sorts of things um, are really important. And especially so um, in the current environment where, you know, a lots, lots and lots of cases for many months will have stopped sat stagnant with not a whole lot of forward momentum. So being able to to push forward, I think, is is really important. Uh, thanks, David. I mean, great points. And Judge Mason, you know, from the lawyer's perspective, David talked about the importance of status conferences and what useful can happen with final pretrial conferences. How about the bench's perspective uh, on those things? When do you believe Rule 16 conferences are most helpful? Are they necessary in every case? Your thoughts? 
Well, spoken personally, I think they're really important during the course of a pandemic. Uh, first and foremost, to assist in getting cases back on track. Now, here, bear in mind that Rule 16 conferences may not be in order for every case. If parties can file a motion for an amendment to a tracking order and simply proceed um, uh, between counsel, that's great. However, um, for those cases in which there may not be agreement between a counsel, or should parties be seeking a little more direction, so to speak, from the court, Rule 16 is another great tool uh, for utilization um, at this particular point in time. Bear in mind that any party can file a request for a Rule 16 conference. It could be a joint request or the court on its own can schedule a Rule 16 conference. Indeed, I am going to surmise that there will be Rule 16 conferences that judges establish um, uh, um, on their own, sui sponte, so to speak. They're important in simplifying issues, in addressing amendments to uh, pleadings in order to avert um, litigation uh, relative to the amendment of those uh, pleadings. They're important relative to discovery disputes and ad addressing those discovery disputes before um, they result in attenuated discovery uh, litigation. Uh, for example, can the parties obtain certain admissions of fact that would avoid unnecessary uh, discovery? Is there a limitation on the number of expert witnesses that might be involved? Uh, are there issues pertaining to the timing and extent of discovery, and particularly with regard to ESI, electronically stored information? What preservation of discovery um, is there? Indeed, take a look at Rule 26F, which provides for uh, mandatory conferences uh, for ESI. And certainly, Rule 16 conferences have much utility in exploring the possibility of settlement overall or um, as to one aspect, as we discussed earlier, relative to Rule 20, uh, parties may wish simply to uh, litigate the issue of damages and um, move forward in that regard. So there is a full panoply of issues that can be addressed under a Rule 16 conference. And uh, in direct response to your question now, uh, the Rule 16 conference is um, as important now, if not more so than it ever has been and certainly understand that after your Rule 16 conference that the court is going to issue an order relative to the subject matter of that conference. Okay, thanks, Judge Mason. Uh, Judge Sanders, uh, if I could, I'd like to go to you now for a, a BLS perspective on the, on the matters we've been discussing. How does the business litigation session anticipate perhaps prioritizing cases when things can move forward and, and also um, what's the BLS view or your view for the BLS of making uh, use of Rule 16 conferences? Um, okay, I, I, I do see we're running um, behind schedule here. So I do want to get at, at some point to dispositive motions. I know yeah. that's agenda. Um, very briefly, um, I totally agree on Rule 16 conferences. BLS is, has a lot of those. The, the reality, though, again, though, is that we have clerks in one day a week. So we're going to look at the, all the cases that were canceled in this two-month period, take dispositive motions first, schedule those, uh, and then uh, look at our case lists and uh, Rule 16 next. The civil sessions in Suffolk that have very large caseloads, frankly, it's going to be hard for them to do that. If you want a, a Rule 16 conference, contact the clerk and ask for it. Don't wait for the clerk to schedule one. Uh, so I'll leave it at that because I do want to get to dispositive motions. 
Okay, but thank you, Judge, and, and let's get into motions. I, I want to start uh, first with with um, David, and and just briefly, David, ask about uh, Rule Nine C and and the uh, role of Rule Nine C as we're and re resolving motions generally. Obviously, it's cumbersome for the court at this time to have hearings on dispositive motions and discovery motions. What are your thoughts on Rule 9C, the utility of it, conferring with opposing counsel prior to serving motions? Well, I think, um, and I obviously defer to the judges on the panel, but I think it's fair to say that the days of 9C certifications that say, you know, I sent an email, I waited 32 seconds, I didn't get a response, and they didn't capitulate to everything I want, and so therefore I'm filing my motion. Those days may are probably over. Um, and so I expect, and again, defer to the judges here, that the 9C certifications are going to be more closely scrutinized. And if you are not clear and unambiguous about the efforts and lengths and extent to which you went to seek to resolve motions, particularly discovery motions, motions to amend, those sorts of things, you may find yourself on the receiving end of a denied without prejudice to have a Rule 9C conference. Because um, ultimately, I, with the backlog of cases that we're all hearing about, and judges essentially drinking out of a fire hose for the next at least several months, um, they're gonna look to the lawyers to make sure that we're um, the place of last resort for these sort of um, disputes to be resolved and not the place of first resort. Okay, and Judge Mason, you in these, sort of complex times, how important are Rule C, uh, Rule 9C certifications uh, to the bench? Is it more important to see the, the 9C process followed through in certain types of disputes rather than others? I think we, you might be on mute, Judge. There we go. There we go. I apologize. Uh, absolutely. Okay. If anything comes out of this horrible experience is the importance of uh, counsel uh, conferring and reporting on uh, disputes that pertain to either discovery matters or dispositive motions. Just bear in mind that Rule 9C has been extended to include uh, Rule 12 motions, except for Rule 12C motions for admin appeals, as well as motions for summary judgment under Rule 56. So that, for goodness sake, if you're filing a motion for failure to state a claim under 12B6, that um, uh, might be easily resolved through the filing of an amended complaint. Council has to discuss that, and they need to confer in good faith in order to resolve that. Uh, so uh, Rule 9C is um, certainly extremely important now, and I think I speak for many in um, saying that we take those certifications very seriously, uh, and uh, from my bench, it is um, not uncommon for me to uh, request parties go out, counsel go out into the hallway to continue their 9C uh, conference while I hear other cases and more often than not, they come back in with an agreement. Okay, uh, great. Now, turning really specifically to discovery motions first, and then we'll talk about dispositive motions, but Judge Connolly, any observations on how the court will deal with resolving discovery disputes? Uh, including discovery motions and requests for hearings on discovery motions. I think you know, there's a there's a perception in the bar anyway that judges hate discovery disputes, that the practitioners should be able to work most of them out. But with that in mind, uh, and now in this new age, how do you how do you see the court handling discovery disputes? Well, I can't predict exactly how it's going to play out, except to say this: 
having been a practitioner for 30 some odd years, I actually can appreciate a good discovery dispute. I can understand why it's important. Sometimes it's a real pressure point in the case. I don't presume that all discovery disputes are people acting in bad faith. I think, you know, as an attorney-client privilege or something like that. And so I would never discourage people from, as Judge Mason said, working through that nine seat, really narrow the issues um, and tee it up for a rule nine, a package and a, uh, a decision from the court. I don't, I don't discourage people from doing that in a thoughtful um, way. And if you need a hearing on it, or if the judge thinks that they need a hearing on it, um, the judge will certainly let you know you can request a hearing and the judge um, can tell you whether or not that that would be helpful in deciding the motion. So I'm not sure that this um, current situation we have is necessarily gonna change how we handle discovery motions, um, other than if you go in the hallway, you gotta be six feet apart, uh, might be harder to resolve it that way. I don't know. We'll be shouting at one another. Uh, but I do agree with David saying it's not enough just to say I sent an email. They never responded and didn't agree to everything I want. I think you have to put a little bit more into it. Uh, but that's all I have to say about discovery. And I defer the rest of my time to uh, Judge Sanders and dispositive motions. Okay, great. And Judge Sanders, uh what can attorneys expect from the court in handling dispositive motions now, given the, the limitations of staff and courtroom time uh, that, that we'll be operating under? Uh, well, I think, first of all, and I see one of the, a question popped up about this, given that um, trials are so, jury trials are such a long way off, um, um, and we can talk about bench trials in a minute. I, frankly, I think these motions are obviously quite important. Um, uh, to the extent and trial can be avoided at all. Um, I haven't been a big fan of partially dispositive motions. As you know, there's a procedural order in effect in the BLS. Um, but um, and now, um, frankly, if it, there was any chance that it might narrow the case in a way that might promote settlement, I would be much more um, indulgent, not that I ever really um, put the brakes too much on these motions in the first place. Uh, the procedural order in the BLS, by the way, does require us parties to have a status conference with the court. And frankly, I might be looking into, um, uh, in consultation with um, the BLS Bench Bar Committee, changing that so that uh, rather than have a, having a conference, which takes up that valuable time, uh, the, the attorney could simply write a letter saying, this is why I think this makes sense and deal with it just on that basis uh, rather than have this status conference. Uh, so these motions I think are gonna be quite important. Um, that said, um, now we have, for example, 12 motions that were canceled in BLS 2 that have to be dealt with. Um, it's probably just as many in BLS 1. Um, so the first thing the judge is going to be looking at is, do we really have to have a hearing? And the judge will be reaching out to attorneys to ask them if they will waive a hearing. Um, you know, it's on the summary judgment is just a legal issue. Uh, often hearings are quite helpful, uh, um, but um, not necessary. Uh, uh, and um, you should really consider whether uh, you uh, want to have the delay that's going to be occasioned by insisting on that hearing, particularly since it's only going to be a Friday or a Monday, depending on which session you're in, um, and it may be weeks down the road. Um, second, keep in mind that although the rule uh, uh, gives you a presumptive right to a hearing, it also allows the judge some discretion in dispensing with a hearing. Uh, it says ordinarily a hearing is required and uh, the judge may determine after looking at the papers uh, not to have that hearing even if you don't waive it. 
uh, that will uh, essentially be up to the judge. You know, again, I think generally speaking, hearings are helpful, but don't just automatically assume you're going to have a hearing because uh, these uh, remote hearings are complicated logistically um, uh, from the, getting the clerk in the courtroom um, and uh, we're trying to get them um, um, decided. Um, particularly since these hearings are going to be conducted remotely, um, it is essential uh, that you comply with um, Rule 985 uh, and that you be efficient and focused uh, and um, uh, simplify matters as much as possible in your presentation. Uh, so remember that that statement of material facts um, uh, is not to contain any background facts. It's not to have quotes from statutes or contracts. Um, it's limited to 20 pages. Uh, we were getting, you know, these, you know, war and peace volumes uh, from council, which were completely unworkable. Um, so keep it to that 20 pages. And if you're responding, uh, keep it to um, disputed or undisputed. Leave out the arguments, cite to the record, uh, and leave it at that. Um, at hearings on dispositive motions, um, I often have lawyers come with materials to hand up to me um, at the bench, you know, something, an excerpt from the record they want me to pay attention to. Uh, so um, maybe you're more skilled than I am at conducting these remote hearings, um, but, um, you know, I, I don't know how to, um, for, my, for myself, to post something so that somebody else can see it. Uh, you might want to email those copies ahead of time to me or to the judge uh, before the hearing um, so that they can be used in the hearing itself. So keep in mind the fact that this is being conducted remotely, that you don't have that luxury of uh, simply giving uh, the papers um, to uh, the, the, the judge as uh, the hearing unfolds. Judges also may consider putting a time limit on your uh, talk. Um, I like to give BLS lawyers as much time as they want, but if I only have one day a week for these hearings, maybe I'm going to um, start putting, say, well, you better say what you want to say in 15 minutes or a half an hour um, uh, rather than, you know, give you the afternoon as I was sometimes inclined to do. Um, so these motions are uh, critical, uh, uh, particularly in these times, uh, but it is even more important that you look at that Rule 9A and make sure they're presented in a way that the judge can digest the materials in an easy fashion. Thank you, uh, Judge Sanders. Judge Mason, let me turn to you, uh, um, get another view. How do you see the court dealing with dispositive motions? And, and uh, Judge Sanders alluded to this, Rule 9A includes a presumptive right to a hearing on dispositive motions among other types of motions. Does that presumptive right to a hearing hold up while conducting court proceedings in a pandemic? Not necessarily, as uh, Judge Sanders has stated, uh, the rule specifies uh, under Rule 9A uh, that there is a presumptive right to hearing and then delineates certain motions which will ordinarily um, be allowed, the key word here being ordinarily. That best discretion of the judge, whether or not that judge is going to hear those presumptive um, uh, cases, which are generally attachments, trustee process, Rule 12 motions, Rule 56 motions, uh, and some, some other um, motions. Uh, what's important, I think, from the practitioner's perspective is that you include in your request for hearing, as indeed the rule requires, a reason why the court should hold a hearing. Uh, 
indeed, I, I've yet to see a request for hearing that states a basis why I should grant a hearing. That may move the, uh, the, the lever for a, for a judge in determining whether or not to grant a hearing. To be honest, um, more often than not, the written submittals are so plentiful uh, that uh, the um, oral argument is sometimes, at least in, in my courtroom, best suited to uh, questions that I may have for clarification. In my mind, that's a good reason to hold a hearing. So if you believe that I may have questions or a judge may have questions relative to particular issues, then by all means, include that in uh, your request for a hearing. Uh, I would like to simply add one other um, matter before we uh, move on to, um, uh, to bench trials, and that's relative to emergency motions. Under Rule 9A, there is a provision that a party filing an emergency motion must certify that that motion was made in good faith, um, that that uh, counsel made a good faith effort, that is to say, to contact and confer with all parties regarding the subject of the motion and shall then um, uh, certify whether or not the party assents or opposes to the emergency motion. So please understand that if you're filing an emergency motion, you must include that certification that falls under Rule 9A, little d in parentheses. Thank you, Judge. Um, the, uh, you mentioned bench trials. Why don't, why don't we turn to bench trials? And Judge Sanders, I'd like to get your view first. Uh, you indicated it may be uh, quite some time, at least in Suffolk County, before there are jury trials in, in civil matters. Uh, what do you see as the, the possibilities with, with bench trials and maybe perhaps bench trials in lieu of jury trials? So let me just uh, explain a little bit about why I think jury trials are so far off. And maybe it's obvious, but um, in Suffolk County in particular, uh, jury panelists come in primarily through public transportation. That's going to be very difficult as long as we have um, the, the virus around. Uh, we typically gather as many as 200 people in a room uh, from which to impanel three or four cases. Uh, we can't do that anymore. We um, bring jurors up to courtrooms in elevators nine to 10 at a time. We cannot do that anymore. We put them in a courtroom 60, 70 at a time um, uh, to question them uh, both as a group and then individually. We can't do that anymore. Uh, we're gonna have to bring in much smaller groups uh, spaced appropriately. The jurors, jury's then selected. The, every single courtroom, they sit shoulder to shoulder. That would have to be modified. Deliberations rooms are about as big as my um, den. Uh, they're tiny. Um, they have to spend hours there. That's going to have to change. So the facilities are going to have to be drastically reorganized um, to accommodate jury trials. Uh, and criminal jury trials are going to take are going to come first because obviously there's people in custody. Uh, and prisons right now are very vulnerable to the virus. Um, that said, um, 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 given that we're a long way off from civil jury trials, I think litigants uh, and lawyers really have to think hard about um, uh, waiving a jury. Uh, certainly in business cases, um, um, I, I, I don't see the big advantage from juries. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's reasons why you wanna go to the jury, but understand if you decide to go that way, you're going to be waiting um, a long time before your case is resolved. Um, uh, so um, consider um, 
um, waiving jury. And then most important, consider that provision in Rule 20 uh, that uh, um, whereby you waive um, uh, the requirement that a judge make written findings and rulings. Um, um, those written findings and rulings take quite a bit of our time. Um, I more often than not um, hear a uh, testimony at a trial. I know exactly what I want to do, just as a jury. Um, I could check off those boxes if I had a special verdict slip and give you a decision um, either that day or take it under advisement here, oral arguments, and give you the decision within a couple of days. Uh, if you uh, require findings and rulings, uh, and then I await your proposed findings and rulings, often, which I have to say, are not particularly helpful, um, we're talking months. Uh, so it's a big difference in terms of time. Um, I get the sense that lawyers feel like they're giving something up by waiving these findings and rulings. Um, um, first of all, as I said, um, most of, many of my decisions come down to the credibility of witnesses, um, doesn't turn on complicated questions of law. But if you're worried about um, a judge misapplying the law and that not being apparent from the judge filling out a special verdict slip, there is a way of dealing with that. And that is by giving the judge, much like you give the judge proposed jury instructions, you give the judge certain uh, proposed um, uh, principles of law that you're asking that judge to follow. And then before the judge makes a decision or is part of the judge's decision, the judge would then uh, um, disagree or agree with that proposition. So if there was a dispute, and as I said, often there is no dispute as to the applicable principles, uh, then it's on the record the judge will have resolved it uh, and the appeals court will then know whether the judge has uh, applied the wrong rule of law uh, in reaching, reaching his or her finding. Uh, so I really would con, um, strongly uh, urge you to consider uh, that option. Uh, if you don't, we will do what we need to do. The advantage of not having jury trials, as Judge Conley said, is we have more time on our hands once we get through this bottleneck. And it, there is going to be a bottleneck for the next couple of months. Um, so that it's going to be hard for us to have any trials, even bench trials, I think, until we deal with uh, all the cases that have been canceled. Uh, um, um, but once we get there, um, we will be able to um, um, put in that extra time because we won't have a jury every um, between nine and one uh, that we have to tend to. Thanks, Judge Sanders. David, um, you know, Judge Sanders believes it'll be quite some time before jury trials are available. Judge Sanders talked about some of the benefits and, of uh, bench trials and different ways it can be done. In a case where you ordinarily uh, would want a jury trial, will you consider a bench trial instead in the interest of moving forward? What are the factors in your mind and, uh, and what are your thoughts about Judge Sanders' suggestion about waiving findings of fact and rulings of law? Is that on the table for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that the short answer is, I think it has to be <laughs> because if you have, uh, you know, these, it is very expensive, as we all know, to litigate these cases and knowing that you're not going to see a, a trial for a significant period of time requires that you try and be flexible. I think the biggest issue that litigants and their lawyers are going to have to try and get over, and it's really hard, is um, sort of the philosophy of 
well, if the other side wants it, it must be bad for me. <laughs> so, and so the other side's willing to waive a jury. All of a sudden you say, well, wait, wait why are they waiving a jury? That, that must be an advantage for them. So uh, my default position is I must have a jury. And so I think that um, it's, it's it, I think that we have to be practical. We have to be realistic. And a, a lot of this is really just about presenting the, the stark reality to clients and saying, all right, this is a sort of a, a, a very simple choice. You can do X and have a result then at this particular time, or you can wait and much, much further down the road. I, you know, I, I've always found that, and Judge Sanders is right, if you feel like you're giving up something by waiving findings and conclusions. I think it's, it's, it's all lawyers and clients want to know if I'm going to lose, I want to know why I lost, right? And sort of, and so again, it's trying to get over the instinct, the instinct that that one has to 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 get away from that and to focus on the practicalities and the realities. But to Paul, to answer your question, I think that um, you that that a lawyer would be a fool not to look at the facts as they exist in reality and determine with their clients whether. Um, the old-fashioned way that we traditionally have been doing things, we have to be creative and thoughtful about how things are going to go. Because some clients, quite frankly, can't wait three years for a jury verdict, you know, or a resolution. They, you know, they're, and particularly in this economy, in this world, you know, um, legal fees, results, certainty, closure, all of those things, um, I think the, the importance will be even more elevated than, than they, they have been in the past. Well said, David. Thank you. Judge Connolly, I think you, you also had some thoughts on, on jury wave trials. I just wanted to make two really quick points. One is a proposition to everyone out there, whoever's left, and that's this. If you're thinking about mediation, which is a perfectly fine option, or arbitration in some of your cases, I would suggest to you that a jury waive trial before a superior court judge uh, with a waiver of findings and rulings with the verdict slip is a better way to go. It's more cost efficient than private ADR or an arbitration. Um, in some respects, arbitration is the worst of all worlds because if you think they got it wrong, you have no rights of appeal, except in very limited situations. Whereas a superior court judge, you're still, you haven't given away your right of appeal if you think you got the law wrong. Second of all, even though to David's point, which is true, I think if you're not going to win a case, you want to know why. Um, I've done jury wave cases with just verdict slips, and I've done prepared findings and rulings, and I would agree with Judge Sanders that often the time and energy and money that counsel spent with their proposed findings and rulings, especially before trial, bear very little resemblance to the evidence that I've actually heard in the trial, so they're not all that useful. But um, I think sometimes you don't want to know what my subsidiary findings are, because they may become then uh, facts that if you do take an appeal, those subsidiary facts are gonna be given away by the appellate court um, and deference because I was the finder of facts. So you may not really wanna know why, all you really need is that verdict slip and you may end up having more flexibility if you took an appeal than if I went through a very detailed 30 page decision telling you exactly why I did what I did. Uh, so I would put those two propositions out. Jury waived, waive the rulings and findings. You'll have your cases addressed far more quickly. And I would suggest to you, you know, we have a very good bench, very well uh, trained and have, have seen lots and lots of cases, lots of experience. 
and you can bring that to bear in your cases in a very cost-effective way. Thank you, Judge Connell. Yes, Judge Mason. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, words um, uh, uh, to live by, um, uh, Judge Conley and Judge Sanders. I just want you to join in the chorus. You know, oftentimes I don't fully understand the bar's reluctance to engage in jury wave trials um, in favor of arbitrations. Um, we can do it just as well. Uh, we can do it just as quickly, um, utilizing Rule 20, Rule 16, all of which we have discussed today. And we could do it certainly cheaper. Um, uh, than private arbitration. Uh, as for those counsel who are negotiating a jury waiver, um, a 12% annual statutory interest is a great equalizer. <laughs> Glad you made that point, Judge. Um, and I suspect that with arbitrations, you know, it, it, some matters might be locked into arbitration because there's some contractual arbitration provision, but then that goes back to the drafting. Think about it. Do you really want a contractual arbitration provision or do you want to leave your options open when you're drafting those contracts? Anyway, that's a rhetorical question. Um, we have about 10 minutes left at the, at the most and uh, I do want to turn to uh, remote hearings because I suspect we'll all be doing uh, more of these. Um, Judge Connolly, uh, as we're participating in more remote uh, hearings with the court. Any tips for appearing in remote hearings, do's and don'ts that you might have? I think we had a list of tips. Judge Mason, did we circulate that or was that for us? No, it was sent to the, um, uh, the BBA for publication. The Civil Committee has published uh, tips for, um, uh, so to speak, best practices or a guide um, uh, um, to uh, remote hearings. And uh, that uh, we can ask the BBA to make available on its website. All right, and then just a couple of follow-ups. In terms of attire, it's still a professional, um, formal arrangement, even though we're using technology to accomplish it. So, you know, your attire should be somewhere between, I don't know, my cousin Vinny and Legally Blonde. Somewhere in that continuum would probably work. Um, you know, put your dogs in a different room, the children are adorable, but you don't want those distractions any more than you would in a courtroom. It's a professional, it's formal. Your clients are entitled to um, have your undivided attention with the court during that time. So um, speak slowly because often there's a lag time uh, with the technology. If we need an interpreter, that adds another layer of complexity. Um, the judges are going to act more and more, if you will, almost like MCs, uh, making sure that everyone's been heard, uh, that everyone's had their opportunity, uh, that everyone had their um, two sets. So um, I think we're just going to have to be patient uh, with each other as we go forward, learning the technology, learning the skill set we're going to need um, to be able to handle these. We've done a couple now here, and we've played it back. We've had the court monitors listen to our Zoom recording. Um, on the FTR, and we're finding that for the most part, they're, they're coming across loud and clear, which is great. Uh, so if you need a transcript, you can get the transcript. So I think between the passing out the tips and making those available to the bar, of course, use some common sense and think about uh, some of those uh, delays that may happen and how you're presenting the material. Thanks, Judge Connolly. And David, let me just turn to you briefly. I, I, I think as Judge Connolly said, it is a lot of common sense in terms of how to conduct yourself in a, in a remote hearing, but 
what's your advice? Would you approach remote arguments any differently if it was on the phone or video screen as opposed to in person? Yeah, I mean, the, the few um, conferences that I've had recently over the telephone, the hardest thing, and, and again, it's, it's, it's obvious, is not being able to pick up on the nonverbal cues from the judge. And you just, it's, it, you're, you're a little bit flying blind, it's hard. Um, and and the, the only advice that I, I can give, and I'm bad at following my own advice, is to just go slow. Um, because you think um, you're flying through something and if you were in a courtroom, you'd see the judge flipping through the pages, finding where you are or looking up at you and looking um, confused and you know you have to slow down. On, uh, and I agree with um, Judge Connolly on the, on the Zoom calls, the biggest issue really is the lag and not speaking over people and, and waiting, again, being patient and going slow, which is really hard to do because everyone's time is valuable and everyone wants to get every point out as quickly as they can so that you know the judge has it all, but it really is um, much more so than when you're in court is um, you know, resisting the temptation to, to go fast and to get to the end. So those would be my two big, big picture tips, I think. Okay, thank you, thank you David. Um, you know, we, we wanted to address a, a little bit about uh, communications between the bench bar and the clerk's office. We're short on time, I wanna get a couple of questions in. I would just say to, to sort of set the stage for that, you know, we're in a new and different mode of operations now. Uh, it requires good line of communications among attorneys, judges, and clerks, you know, events like we're doing today are very helpful. We don't have a clerk's office represented, but uh, despite everyone's best efforts, there's going to be some probably uncertainty and confusion uh, about court procedures in this environment. Uh, it's unusual. Certainly it helps that the court has issued clear standing orders addressing changes in procedures. That helps a lot. My view is the clerk's office uh, can be part of the solution as well. It would be you know, extremely helpful if clerks are available and responsive uh, to direct inquiries. If you know, attorneys can always call and leave messages for clerks, it's not clear to us as practitioners necessarily whether we'll ever hear back from that clerk. Some are better than others at doing that. Um, it would be helpful maybe if clerks would you know, monitor email every day or be directed to do that so that we can get routine responses to emails and guidance on um, you know, procedural issues and case specific issues. Um, and you know, for attorneys, it's, it's just to have the resource of a, and luxury of a responsive clerk, I think is, is greatly helpful and it can go a long way in facilitating handling of cases and managing expectations of our clients. Um, and I mean, Judge Mason, it, you know, in this, time of uncertainty yet how can how can clerks help should the clerk's offices also be part of the bench bar meetings uh, that we have on an ongoing basis there are 95 percent of the uh, discussion uh, and I'll be brief because I want to turn to the Q&A here uh, yeah. it's all about communications at this point in time those communications have to be bench bar clerk communications on a local level on a statewide uh, level most of our associations have COVID-19 task forces, get involved in those. Uh, check out the FAQs for the Superior Court online, the SJC. The SJC has a wonderful FAQ hotline, which is for everyone, including lawyers. And lastly, I'll simply suggest that check out the Lawyer Wellbeing Task Force 
uh, website, which is at lawyerwellbeingma.com. It provides a wealth of resources uh, for counsel in navigating these difficult waters. Thank you, Judge. Why don't we try to get to a couple of questions? We have only a few minutes left. Maybe we can do this in somewhat rapid fire fashion. There's no way we can get to all the questions. Um, just to, there are some great questions here, but let me um, throw some out to, to the panel here. Uh, there's a question about um, mediation and, and ordered mediation. Given the backlog of cases, does do any of the judges here envision that the court might order parties to mediation rather than just you know, present it as, as an alternative? And any of the judges have thoughts on that? Judge Sanders? No, we do, I'd love to order parties to mediation. I don't have the power to do that. <laughs> um, you know, the only, if, there, if a party is um, um, indigent, um, I've certainly, um, I, there's, there's times where I have essentially said, you know, go, to me, go, to, go with a, somebody you don't have to pay. I think the limitation here is I cannot order somebody to go to mediation where they're gonna have to fork out some money. If it's free, that's a different story. But free mediation, as Judge Mason pointed out, is limited at this point. We have the one, um, the, the person, Mr. McCormick, who Judge Mason alluded to, um, the hope is more judges will become involved um, in providing similar kinds of services. But unless it's free, I can't order it. Okay, thank, thank you, Judge. Uh, there's a question about the e-filing program that I think is interesting. And I don't know if any of the judges on the, on the panel know about uh, what the future plans are. Is, do you know if there are plans to expand the e-filing program to superior courts in, in other counties other than the current counties it, it covers? Uh, okay. Judge Connolly. I know there's a, a program that they're working to roll it out. It um, is bearing both the software, the technology, and there's several trial courts that they're working with, not just the Superior Court. They've got the Family Court and um, uh, Juvenile Court and District Court and whatnot. So, so it is part of a, a rolling process, and they're getting the feedback from those counties that have started it and incorporating that so that the next phase rollout will have learned from the first. So, yes, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's just, I, I don't know exactly what the timetable is, but I know that we're, we're working towards that and they've got a lot of resources devoted to it. Okay, that's great to hear. This is a specific question, but I think interesting about e-signatures. E uh, there's some experience among some lawyers that e-signatures or scanned signatures on affidavits are, are not being accepted by clerks or by the courts. What are your views on, on whether uh, uh, e-signatures can be, can be acceptable on affidavits? Anyone, David? Yeah, so if, if, I think if you're getting pushback from the clerk's office, what you ought to do is refer the clerk to the SJC order OE144, which is the April 6th order I made reference to and direct the clerk to paragraph four, which deals with this very issue and the ability of the court to accept e-signatures um, if the individual from whom you would be obtaining the signed affidavit has issues delivering the original signature to you. And that sort of goes to the, the comments I made very early on about each clerk's office has their own sort of little set of um, issues that some courts, some clerk's offices don't. And so, um, but, but I think that the SJC was pretty clear and um, 
paragraph four speaks directly to what's permitted and what's not. So um, it may just be a communication issue. Great, thanks David, very, very helpful. I think we've run uh, the course in our time here. Uh, any final words for anybody in the last 30 seconds that any in the, anyone in the panel wants to get in? Okay, well he hearing none, thank you all very much. First, thank you to the panel, Judge Sanders, Judge Connolly, Judge Mason, David Rich of Todd and Well, thank you all very much for the panel. This was extremely informative and helpful. And thank you to everyone uh, joining virtually. We appreciate your uh, time and attention. Thank you. And we'll do something like this again soon, hopefully. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all.